Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of reconnecting with Dr. Jason Fung. We last connected in October of 2020 for the podcast, episode 121. And if you're not familiarized with Dr. Fung, he is one of the leading voices in the intermittent fasting, low-carb space. He's also a nephrologist and the one of the founding members of the Fasting Method to provide evidence-based advice for weight loss and managing blood glucose focusing on low-carb diets and intermittent fasting. He's also the author of The Obesity Code, The Complete Guide to Fasting, The Diabetes Code, and Cancer Code. Today, we spoke at great length about the forecast for metabolic health in 2024, the growth of the diabetes population relative to the impact of the pandemic, conflict of interest with organizations like the ADA, as well as registered dietitians, some of his biggest pet peeves, including the myopic focus on calories in, calories out, which he believes to be very shallow thinking, as there's so much that drives behavior around food, the impact of metabolic health and gender, the impact of puberty, perimenopause and menopause, as well as andropause, hedonistic eating, the role of sarcopenia, bioindividuality and therapeutic fasting, his thoughts on GLP-1s, shift work, supplements, and more. I know you will love this conversation as much as I did recording it. Dr. Fung, such an honor and a privilege to have you back on the podcast. Welcome again. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah. I thought it would be fun to kind of talk about the metabolic health forecast for 2024. I know some of the recent statistics that I'm sure you're very familiarized with is that as one example, the diabetic population is expected to grow 3.2% annually. And right now there are over 38.4 million Americans with diabetes, which is 11% of the population. But even more concerning than that is that there are 8.7 million Americans who are currently undiagnosed, and that's 22.8% of the population. And those statistics come from the CDC, and they are readily available online. What are your thoughts? Are you thinking that we are heading in the right direction as a population, or do you think we are still navigating poor metabolic health to a really significant rate? You know, personally, I actually think we'll continue to see some worsening. I mean, if you look at type 2 diabetes, which is one of the big problems, you see that it sort of lags the obesity epidemic. So as that gets worse, then diabetes gets worse, but it doesn't sort of turn around right away. The other thing is that we know that there are interventions that work very well for type 2 diabetes in terms of reversal and so on. So there's been a number of studies. So intermittent fasting is one of those that has shown a lot of benefit. And it's not very difficult to understand. If you don't eat, your body will use some of that glucose that is in excess. So the other thing, of course, is low carbohydrate diet. Again, you know, there's three macronutrients, carbs, proteins, and fats. Carbs are glucose. That's just how they're structured, right? They're chains of glucose. You know, they come, so bread, rice, potatoes, they're glucose. So when you eat them, your blood glucose goes up. If you eat an egg, which is protein and fat, they're amino acids and triglycerides, they're not glucose. So your blood glucose doesn't go up. Doesn't mean that they don't have calories. It doesn't mean that you can't get uh, fat eating fats and proteins, but it does mean that it, of the three, the carbohydrates are going to have the biggest effect on glucose because they are glucose. So again, not terribly hard to understand. So we see that those two interventions have the potential to really transform type 2 diabetes, which is the most important metabolic disease. But if you go out in the and talk to sort of regular people, like, you know, what's the American Diabetes Association saying? What's the, you know, the dietitian saying? What's out there? You see that these sort of interventions are not really embraced at all. We were sort of making pretty good progress up until COVID. Then, of course, COVID hit and nobody really cared. 
about it. So then it sort of died. And now you see a lot of pushback. People say, oh, it's all about calories. It's like, uh, you know, you know, haven't you talked about calories for the last 50 years? And there's a difference between calories from amino acids and calories from glucose, because one is glucose and one is amino acids. <laughs> they both have calories, but they're different. So I think I thought we were making actually pretty good progress up until about COVID. Then COVID hit, everybody sort of everything sort of went down because nobody cared about it. It was all about COVID. And then now it's sort of like starting from square one. So a lot of the sort of called people who are talking about low carb and intermittent fasting, that's all sort of gone. Now you see it's back to the sort of academic centers, which are all about calories, you know, and they're, of course, getting lots of funding from these you know, food companies and so on. We know that, you know, the dietitian associations, the diabetes associations get lots and lots of money from food companies that want to promote this idea that you can have anything you want as long as, you know, you eat it in moderation, which is great for their numbers. So I think it's tough because I actually am a little bit pessimistic that we will start to make a dent. I was quite optimistic up until a few years ago. Now it seems like we have to start that conversation all over again. You know, so it sort of put us back sort of five or 10 years almost, the whole COVID thing. And, you know, it's a bit unfortunate. So I, I expect that the diabetes situation will just continue to get worse. I mean, unless, you know, people start listening to people like you, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think it's helpful for listeners to understand the degree of this problem. It is a systemic problem. It is a problem with messaging. It is a problem with our associations really not focusing in on the bigger picture. You know, it's not that more medication is going to fix this. It's that we actually do need to embrace these lifestyle changes. And I would imagine because when I was still working in the hospital, I would hear this, my cardiac patients that would sit down with these very hyper-processed meals that were supposedly, you know, low in salt and low in saturated fat, but very dense, carbohydrate dense. And I would hear the registered dietitians that were in the hospital saying, oh, don't worry, we'll just cover it with more insulin. And so I think that's been the prevailing wisdom, if you will, that will just give you more medication to fix a lifestyle problem. And what really needs to happen is that clinicians need to be more attuned to the fact that a lot of the nutritional advice and the dogma that we've embraced as a culture, as clinicians, has largely made this situation worse. More medication's not going to fix this lifestyle problem. And so not ironically enough, I put down, you know, some of your biggest pet peeves and I knew calories in, calories out would definitely be in there. And that's certainly one of mine as well. Talk to listeners about the net impact of hormones on weight gain, because I think that calories matter in the sense that you know, if you overeat any one thing that can become problematic, but understanding that overeating carbohydrates in and of itself can, you know, set up this cascade of hormonal dysregulation that will likely make things much worse. Yeah, I think that sort of people who talk about calories all the time are thinking very sort of shallowly. I mean, you know, to me, it's not about the calories, it's about what's controlling the calories, right? It's not that you're taking more calories in than calories out. Yes, that is always true. But what is driving you to take more calories in versus calories out, right? And, you know, the calories people always say, well, it's your choice, right? It's like, no, it's not. Because if you're hungry, you're going to eat more. That's just life. So it's, and you can't choose to be less hungry. So it's not a choice at all. So if the hormones are driving hunger, if you're, you know, there are certain foods, for example, which have certain effects that stimulate certain hormones that make you full. So you eat proteins, it stimulates peptide YY, for example, that's a satiety hormone, tells you to stop eating after a while. You eat fat, which stimulates cholecystokinin, which is another satiety hormone that tells you to stop after a while. You eat bulky carbohydrates like salads and stuff to activate stretch receptors in the stomach, which again, signals you to stop eating. So there are lots of hormonal systems which tell you how much to eat, when to eat, when not to eat. It makes you hungry or not hungry. So there are a lot of hormonal systems and that's really what drives the calories, right? So it's not that calories are irrelevant. It's that you're not looking at the right sort of thing. You're, it's sort of like first level thinking, not sort of second order thinking, which is important because that's sort of the root cause. It's sort of 
like, you know, if you were to ask the question, sort of, you know, what causes, what, why did the Titanic sink, right? Then you might say, well, it hit an iceberg. And that's really the wrong answer. Everybody says, what are you talking about? Of course, that's the right answer. It's like, no, if you think that's the right answer, then all you say is that to prevent any future problems, don't hit icebergs, right? Which is stupid advice, right? It's like every captain, you must know, please don't hit an iceberg. That wasn't the problem, right? The problem and the sort of root cause is that it was going too fast in an area where it's dangerous. Same if you have a car on an icy road, you might say, why did you crash? And it's like, well, because I hit a wall, right? But that's not the reason. The reason is that it was, you're driving too fast for the condition. Same with the Titanic, right? So you're not looking for that sort of first order thinking, you're looking for that second order thinking, right? Same thing with planes, right? Why did the plane crash? Well, the force of gravity was more than the force of lift. Of course, it's true, but it's not useful. Same as the calories. What you're looking for is, you know, the door blew off the plane. And that's why, you know, people got sucked out and the plane crashed, right? It didn't crash in this case. But, you know, the whole point is that you're trying to look at what is controlling the calories in, calories out. Why are you taking more calories in? Not that you are taking more calories in, right? So if you say to the Titanic, okay, go slower, then you're going to prevent another accident. If you tell somebody, because you're getting to the root cause, if you tell somebody don't hit icebergs, but they drive really fast, they may still hide an iceberg. And you said, well, I told you not to hit an iceberg, right? But you know, that's the same thing as saying to somebody, don't eat so much, right? It's like, but why are you hungry, right? What hormones are controlling it? And we know that it's all about hormones, because if you look at the drugs that make you gain and lose weight, they don't control calories, they control your hormones. So you look at insulin, you give insulin, somebody gains weight, Everybody gains weight when you take insulin. Why? Because the hormone insulin is telling you to store more calories. That's its job. So you're going to be hungrier and go out and store more calories. Same thing with Ozempic, you know, the weight loss drug. Ozempic does not control your calories. It controls your hunger. By reducing your appetite, reducing your hunger, you're going to eat fewer calories and that's what's controlling it. But you notice that that is the, you're getting at that sort of deeper level. You're not trying to control calories. You're trying to control the hunger, which is controlling the calories, right? And that's why calorie counting is so spectacularly unsuccessful. It's the equivalent of just telling people drink less alcohol. You know, it's shallow thinking, right? Because if you're an alcoholic, it's all about alcohol in versus alcohol out, right? That's true, 100% true. But it doesn't mean that it's useful to say, just drink less alcohol, right? Or you tell an addict, just take less cocaine. They can't. <laughs> That's the whole point. You know, so if your problem is that you're eating foods that are stimulating insulin, right? You're eating a lot of carbohydrate, heavy foods, highly processed foods. Your insulin's high. Insulin's going to make you want to eat more. So it's going to increase the number of your hunger. It's going to increase your calories and therefore you're going to gain weight. So it wasn't the calories that was a problem, it was the insulin that was a problem. Same thing with, you know, anything. If you have food addiction, which is causing you to eat more calories, you can't just say eat less calories, just like you can't say take less cocaine, right? You got to control the food addiction, which is controlling the number of calories or emotional eating. People eat for different reasons. And if people are emotional eaters, you can't just say just eat fewer calories. It's stupid. Like it's incredibly stupid because, you know, if your problem is that you're emotional eater, then deal with the emotions, figure it out, get counseling, get antidepressants, whatever it is that might or might not help you. And that is going to control the eating. That is the calories that it control going to control the weight, right? But people say, oh, of course it's about calories. It's all about calories, right? You dealt with the eating. Yes, but you're actually trying to understand the problem now. And that's why it's such a pet peeve because it's so obvious, right? You got to get to that sort of why are people taking more calories? And why are people for alcoholics? Why are they drinking more alcohol? Well, maybe they're depressed. Then you get counseling Cure Alcoholics Anonymous is going to help with the, the reason you're drinking alcohol, and therefore you're going to drink less alcohol.
right? Nobody says, well, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is useless. It's all about alcohol in, alcohol out. But yet for obesity, they say that. They say, oh, of course, all calories are the same, all about calories, right? But, you know, 100 calories of soda is completely different than 100 calories of eggs, different in terms of insulin, different in terms of satiety, satiation, different in terms of everything. The minute you put those two foods in your mouth, the hormonal response is completely and utterly different. And therefore, why would you expect that they're going to have equal effects. It's madness. Like it has no basis in physiology whatsoever. It's completely nuts to talk about calories as the ultimate arbiter, because that's just the sort of first order thinking, right? It's not the sort of second order thinking that you really have to get to the root cause, what's causing the calories to go up. And it's the same in almost every problem you can think of, right? There's always an easy, sort of obvious solution that somebody gets really stuck on, but it's not helpful, right? You know, if you have a room that's too full, you have a bar that's overfilled. Why? Well, more people are going in than coming out, obviously, right? It's like, well, that's not useful. So you don't say just let people in and more people out. It's like the problem is that it was Super Bowl Sunday and everybody was at the bar, right? So you just have to wait, right? But if you understand the problem, then you can deal with it. You can't just say build a bigger door, you know, but that's the sort of calories thing. It's all about the hormones because our whole body, everything in our body is controlled by hormones. And therefore, you have to look at the hormones. You have to look at the deeper reasons why people are not getting, you know, what they want. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise. So you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link 
DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Well, and I think given the fact that our metabolic health in most westernized countries is heading in the wrong direction, largely, I think this reductionistic thinking about just solely focusing on calories and controlling variables is missing the big picture as you've so beautifully identified. And I just interviewed Dr. Judd Brewer last week, and we were talking about true intrinsic hunger versus hedonistic hunger. And you're really speaking to that as well, that helping your patients understand that if you eat a large meal and you're continuing to want to eat, it is probably for reasons beyond the obvious. It's very likely could be, you know, you could have some leptin resistance, there could be some insulin resistance that's driving these choices. Or if you sit down and have a big bowl of pasta versus having a large piece of protein, and maybe some broccoli, you're going to get in many instances, a very different response post meal, you were mentioning these key hormones, stretch receptors, you know, peptide YY, cholecystokinin, if you eat enough fat, that'll tell your brain that you're full. But for a lot of individuals, many individuals, they don't get those cues, and they're shamed into believing it's a lack of control, or they just need to control their calories. And that's going to lead to weight loss. And it's far more complicated than that. Yeah. And what happens is that then some ultra processed food company says, well, you should eat this highly, highly processed bar instead of a good nutritious meal, because it's only X amount of calories, right? Then they grab, you know, they go fund, you know, they sell a product by getting all these academic doctors to say, it's all about calories and nothing else matters. And, you know, eating real food doesn't matter. So just eat this highly processed slop, right? And, and it's fine, right? And people believe them because they're like, oh, they're from this university or that university. And, but it's not true. I mean, the whole idea in calories, it's not wrong. It's just very simplistic to the point of uselessness, right? Same as alcohol in, alcohol out. It's not a useful concept for anything or people in versus people out of a room, right? It's not useful. You have to get to that second order thinking, which is where you'll actually make a difference, which is why, you know, no intervention that targets just calories has succeeded. I mean, I'm not sure how many more decades of research we have to do before people are finally convinced. Like they've done, you know, hundreds of studies on calories reduction and millions and or probably billions of people really have done calorie restricted diets. It pretty well just doesn't work in anybody, right? There are people, of course, who succeed, but mostly when people try to lose weight, they also try to improve the quality of their food. So a lot of times the, the calorie thing gets lost, right? Because you try and give up the pizza and French fries and eat salad. So even though you think you're just changing your calories, you're actually changing the entire composition of your meal and your hormonal balance. So people say, well, it's true. It's like, it's not. And, you know, there's another aspect, which is you're talking about the hedonistic. And, you know, I'm always reminded that it's so silly because if it's sort of obvious, but it's never seems to be obvious to to academic physicians, because some people talk about the Kempner rice diet, which is this diet in the 30s, where people ate rice and sugar. That's all they ate, just rice, white rice, sugar. So pure refined carbohydrates. And people are like, oh, yeah, you could lose weight on that. Well, of course, you can lose weight on that. If every single day, you ate white rice and sugar, you'd be tired of it in about four days. Then you spend another eight months eating rice and sugar. Well, what's going to happen is pretty soon, as soon as you have no hunger, you're going to stop eating that rice and sugar because it's so boring. You have no sort of eat for two reasons. One is hunger and sustenance, and one is uh, for pleasure. And we do both. So if you have no impetus to eat for pleasure, because white rice and sugar just doesn't taste that good after eating every single meal of rice and sugar, you're just going to stop eating as soon as the hunger is gone, right? And you're not going to eat until you're really hungry because all that you can eat is rice and sugar, right? So of course it's going to work because you're controlling sort of what you're eating in that manner by really reducing the sort of pleasure of eating. So it's going to work. It's just nobody's going to stick to it, right? And people talk about this as if the proof that the carbohydrate is the model doesn't work. 
But it's really just that they don't understand. And again, it's so obvious. If the Kevin Rice diet was so good, why has nobody used it for like a, a century? It's not like the ketogenic diet where it fell out of favor, but now it's sort of people are using it again and finding, hey, it is useful. Or the low carbohydrate diet, which has been, you know, it's been around since the 1800s, 1850s, right? So it's like everybody talks about it like it's some giant fad, but it's been around for like close to, you know, 180 years. So it's not that big of a fad or intermittent fasting, which has been around for, you know, 2000 plus years. Like these things are, have been around a while because people use them and find them successful. The Kempner Rice diet died and nobody's trying to revive it. So it's not proof of anything, right? It's like, you know, to use that as an argument is, is just, and I see it sometimes people say, oh, well, what about this? It's like, if you think it's so great for you, go ahead and use it. You do it, right? It's like you follow it. Like I'm not following that diet. It's just not, you know, not feasible. And definitely not sustainable. I can't imagine anyone listening would think, hey, I really want to stick with a predominantly rice and sugar diet. That's going to be really (laughs) enjoyable. I think we would get tired of it pretty quickly. Now, I'd love to pivot a little bit and talk about the impact of metabolic health for middle-aged women. A lot of questions, Dr. Fung, came in around here. Women, in many instances, maybe in their 20s and 30s, they don't deal with a lot of weight loss resistance. But certainly, as women are navigating 40 years of age and older, the hormonal changes that are happening, early perimenopause and menopause, what has been your experience as a clinician, obviously working with thousands and thousands of female patients? What are some of the unique challenges that you see as a clinician in dealing with women as they're navigating these hormonal fluctuations with sex hormones and insulin sensitivity in middle age? Yeah, it's a difficult one because, you know, and it sort of goes again to the whole hormonal basis of a lot of what we're dealing with. So if you think about, you know, and I think this to me is is one of the like in terms of calories and calories out, people talk about, oh, it's definitely calories and calories out. It's definitely not. Because if you take sort of puberty, what you see is that before puberty, boys and girls are roughly the same weight, roughly the same body fat percentage. Then you hit puberty and boys gain a lot of muscle and girls gain more fat. That's just how it happens. About 50% more fat on average. So if weight gain, fat gain is all about calories in, calories out, like in willpower, then what? Do women, you know, just have no willpower or, you know, what is the problem here? And the problem is obviously hormonal, not the problem, but the difference is that boys have a lot of testosterone. So they gain, tend to gain muscle and women have, you know, different sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone. And so they develop different levels of body fat. So you see that it's definitely 100% hormonally controlled. It's not what they ate or decided to eat and, you know, or whatever. Same thing happens on the other side. So as men get older, they actually, you know, start to get less testosterone too. And when you get less testosterone, you tend to gain less muscle and gain more fat. And unfortunately, it sort of happens with aging. And I'm not a sex hormone expert, but it seems to be happening more also in the general population. So, you know, overall testosterone levels seem to be lower for some reason that I'm not entirely clear on. And in women, it's a little more obvious because they go through menopause and therefore they have different hormonal changes. Again, dealing with testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone. Unfortunately, I don't know of any intervention that can change that. I mean, on the internet, they have all these things, oh, boost your testosterone here and there. I'm not entirely clear that whether they work or why they would work. But the problem is that it is going to be a headwind for people as they get older, both men and women in that age group, middle age group, because there are changes to sex hormones that do affect body composition. What can you do about it? There's not that much, you know, to change the sex hormone, right? So if you're very, very low in testosterone, for example, then you could take testosterone replacement. You can get somebody to check your estrogen progesterone levels and see if hormone replacement is beneficial for you. That's been a super controversial topic for a lot of years, right? So 20 years ago, everybody got put on hormonal replacement therapy. Then there was a big thing about breast cancer. Could it be causing a lot of breast cancer? So then everybody moved away from hormonal replacement therapy. There was a scare about testosterone replacement causing heart disease and prostate cancer. So again, whereas 20, 25 years ago, everybody was talking about 
hormonal replacement therapy for women, hormone, uh, testosterone replacement therapy for men. Now they've gone to almost zero. And I'm not sure where the right answer is, but it probably falls somewhere in the middle there. So if that's the root problem, of course, that's hard to fix. So you can't really fix that. So then you get back to trying to adjust your diet. So again, trying to do those things and, you know, like adding the intermittent fasting, which not only is a, you know, it's a way to control your hormones, but also a way to impose a sort of structure on your eating day, right? So if you have a rule, for example, that you don't eat after, you know, 7pm, then it makes it easier to follow because you know, that's a rule. That's just a way after a while, it just becomes a way of life. It's about building that healthy habit that's going to keep you there, right? And it's very important to build habits because habits don't take willpower, and it establishes a baseline for you. So this is why it's so important, as opposed to, say, counting calories where you go, it it can work, but you're not developing any sort of easy to follow habit because every day you're eating different foods. So you're not developing any kind of good habits that are going to keep you there. Every day you're just trying to count, 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 as opposed to fasting where you might say, okay, well, I won't eat before this time. I won't eat after that time. After a while, you're not going to get hungry at that time. I know because I've done it for a while. And people say, you know, it's hard at first. And then after two weeks is just the way it was, right? So, you know, from a behavioral standpoint, there are a lot of benefits to that as opposed to the other. And those are the things that have to focus on in terms of trying to combat that because the root cause of the problem around menopause, which is the sex hormone changes, and also the testosterone in men, you can't actually fix that very easily without testing without drugs and so on. So that's why people have trouble. And it's not their fault. It's just that it's just something else that you have to consider. So you try to do what you can with what you can, you know, what you have control over, which is your diet, the foods that you eat and the times that you don't. Yeah, you bring up so many good points. And for everyone that's listening, Dr. Fung is alluding to the Women's Health Initiative that was published in 2002. And this is when a whole generation of clinicians became very fearful about prescribing hormones. Patients became fearful about taking hormones. I think things are kind of swinging the opposite direction as we've started to look a little more closely at that study that was done. And it's interesting to me that you know, menopause, if women live long enough will happen. And and absolutely, that will occur. And same thing with men, men will go through andropause, which is probably not nearly as spectacular in terms of hormonal situations. But you will see middle aged men in many instances that are dealing with body composition changes, and they may start becoming more insulin resistant. And do you find that your middle aged women when they're weight loss resistant, do they seem to do better with longer prolonged fast? Because I'm always trying to find balance with maintaining muscle, which sarcopenia is a real issue. And so trying to find that balance. And I I think the longer I've been intermittent fasting, the more I've started to get very kind of granular about this topic in particular, because I know fasting in general can be beneficial with growth hormone and therapeutic utilization of fasting. But with those longer fasts, you know, some of the longevity experts talk about these three, five, seven day fasts. What are your opinions about this specifically to women in this middle age group who are dealing with weight loss resistance? I think it can be very useful in, but you have to use it in the right situations, right? And that's always the case because there's always these people. It's always like, oh, you know, so they'll go crazy on something like fasting. So they'll do like fellow, for instance, he, you know, he's not overweight, but he'll do a five day fast like every month. And they'll be like, oh, it's like the worst thing. It's like, that's because you're not really the right person that's supposed to be doing this, right? You don't have weight to lose. And then they come out and they're like, oh, fasting so bad for you. I'm like, no, fasting is just a tool. If you're, you know, lean and muscular and don't have a lot of fat, like, why are you doing five days of fasting every month, right? That's a lot. It's more than what people normally do. So it's all about the situation. So the thing about muscle is that, you know, there's a lot of people who talk about muscle loss, weight, you know, in conjunction with weight loss. And it definitely happens. For sure it happens. But the fasting is not particularly better or worse. Okay. So if you have a prolonged fast, I mean, it's been fairly well studied what happens. You do have a small amount of protein loss, you know, at first period in there of gluconeogenesis, but protein is not muscle. What you're doing is you're breaking down protein, which in 
includes like connective tissue and skin and all this other stuff that should be broken down is very good for you. As you go into sort of two, three, four days, most of your energy is coming from fat and you go into this sort of protein conservation mode. So therefore, you're not burning a lot of protein. What's interesting is that when you actually measure this, what you find, and there's one study that actually looked at uh, sort of how much water you lose. So they did put people on like a five-day fast and so on. And they measured the sort of water weight that was lost. And when you measure it with certain types of measurement, it looks like is that you've lost a lot of muscle in a five-day, seven-day, one of these longer fasts. But when you actually look at it very, very carefully, it's actually mostly water. So, you know, glycogen, for instance, if your muscles use glycogen, you're going to lose it. So your muscles, glycogen carries a lot of water. So then your muscles are smaller. They've lost that glycogen. They've lost that water. It looks like you've lost a lot of lean mass. It looks like you've lost a lot of muscle, but actually you've just lost a lot of water. And, you know, most, I think 80% of the weight loss there was actually just water weight. But it looks like that when you use these other measurements, especially the sort of DEXA scans and so on, the DEXA scans are incredibly inaccurate during long fast. So what you see actually all the time is that, so for example, one patient who's very, very into this sort of measurement, he did a long fast and then he took his DEXA scan. And then he said, wow, we're on a five-day fast. I lost like 10 pounds of muscle in my trunk. And I'm like, okay, that's bizarre. Why would you lose 10 pounds of muscle in your trunk? And then of course he started to eat again. And then after another week or so of just regular eating, he regained like all that muscle. It's like, so do you think it's a measurement problem or do you think you actually burned off 10 pounds of muscle? And then without particularly exercising, you just regained 10 pounds of muscle like for no reason. <laughs> or was it, do you think it's just the measurement issue, right? Of course it's a measurement issue. You just don't lose muscle that fast. And people always confuse two issues because if you think about muscle, you gain muscle because you use it and you lose muscle because you don't use it. It doesn't have heck of a lot to do with what you eat and you don't eat. It's really about using it. That's why when people go up into space or when they're bed bound, they lose muscle extremely quickly because you've taken the entire load off. So you're going to lose muscle. It's just the way that it is, but it doesn't mean that your diet has anything to do with it particularly. You know, as people lose weight, their muscle mass also tends to go down and people worry about that. But think about it. Say you lose 50 pounds. What's happening is that you are putting 50 pounds less weight on your frame, on your muscles. So if you're pushing around 50 pounds, you know, going up the stairs, down the stairs, you're walking around, you've got 50 pounds of more muscle. Like if you put a 50 pound backpack on, right, a big, you know, sack with weight, and you did that every day, you'd gain muscle. Now you take it off, you're going to lose muscle. That's just going to happen because you're actually using less muscle. Because if you're 150, 180, 100 pounds more, you need to carry that right around every day. Every single step that you take has an extra 50 pounds. You're going to build more muscle. So now you lose that weight, you're going to lose muscle. So you have to expect that there is going to be some muscle loss, but it's not because of your diet. It's because you're not using it as much, right? So muscles grow when you use them. Muscles don't grow when you don't use them. And then people talk about, oh, you got to eat more protein. You got to, the fasting does this. Like they're separate issues, right? Why are you confusing the two issues, right? Yes, in the extreme, if you eat like zero protein, yes, you probably will lose muscle because you don't have the amino acids to build muscle, right? But where people sit mostly in a sort of a regular 0.8 to 1.2 grams per day thing, it's like, well, the protein is probably adequate for what you need. You need to put more weight on to build it. It's sarcopenia, as you get older, a lot of it is related to their people are being less active as well, right? And lower testosterone. We know that also leads to less muscle growth. So there's a variety of issues that go on with muscles and muscle loss, but diet is sort of a relatively peripheral thing, unless you're doing extreme diets. On a long fast, again, you're not losing as much protein as you might think, but if you're losing weight on the long term, you will lose some muscle mass due to decreased usage of muscle. So I wouldn't worry about it particularly, but if you're also, you know, you have to see why. Like if you're overweight and have type 2 diabetes, then 
the fasting may benefit you in huge ways, but yes, you will lose some muscle. With any type of weight loss, you see that. With long-term, like, you know, long fasting, I don't think it's particularly worse than any others. But if you measure yourself all the time, and in this study where they looked at the DEXA scan, they actually did a very interesting thing, which is not only did they measure it with the DEXA scan and found that mostly water weight, they actually tested the strength by having people, you know, do maximum lifts. And people are actually stronger after a seven-day fast. Why? Because maybe their, you know, sympathetic tone was up, maybe something else. But clearly they weren't weaker. When you measure the mass of the muscle, you say, oh, you're losing muscle. But when you actually test it, I think either their trunkal strength was higher or their axial strength was higher. I can't remember which one, but they were actually measurably stronger than they were before they did the fasting. So again, tell me what's wrong with that, right? No, it's so helpful. And I mean, what's interesting to me is bioindividuality definitely plays a role in the success of whether or not someone is intermittent fasting, whether it's a daily intermittent fast, or it's something that maybe they're doing three, five, seven day fasts. Thank you for all that good information and the limitations to a DEXA scan, because although this is an inexpensive test, it is not an imperfect test and only gives us a bit of information, but not the full picture. Now, when we talk about weight loss strategies, obviously we've talked about intermittent fasting. We've talked about low carb or carb restricted diets. What about the unique circumstances of individuals that are dealing with shift work, whether they're physicians or nurses or techs or whomever, people that work in the hospital, we know the disruption of our circadian rhythms can play a huge role in challenges related to weight gain and cravings and all sorts of different factors that can influence weight. Yeah, that's a real tough one because, and again, we know stress plays a huge role in weight gain, weight loss. Again, again, people always confuse a lot of things, but what we're looking for is sort of causes, right? We're not looking for correlation. We're looking for causes of obesity, right? So if you give somebody insulin, they gain weight. You take away insulin, they lose weight. That's a causal relationship. You can do the same thing with the stress hormone cortisol because you can give somebody prednisone, which is a synthetic form of cortisol. You give people prednisone, people gain weight. That's just what happens. So therefore, you know that excess cortisol is going to lead to weight gain. So the problem with shift work is that it's hugely stressful because your whole, you know, the way you're, we're sort of designed to work, which is sort of sleep at night and get up during the day is sort of flipped around. And so therefore, there's all these sort of secondary effects of that shift work. You know, again, the problem is that if that's the cause of your issue, your weight gain, you know, then until you fix the cause, right? You're looking for root causes, right? And this is where people, you know, always get confused because they're always like, well, just eat less calories. They're like, but the calories wasn't the problem. The problem was the, the shift work, right? It's the same with the fasting. Like you can't use fasting to fix it because it's the shift work that was the problem, right? So it's not a panacea. Everybody tries to fix it, but the best you can do is try to normalize that you know, your cortisol levels as much as you can try and reestablish some circadian rhythm when you can, because again, hormones go up and down and there's a natural rhythm. So in the morning you have certain hormones that go up and then they go down, but now you've screwed that whole thing up with the shift work. So it's a tough whole branch of that because it's like, once you identify the cause, then you have to see what you can do about it. But if your work requires that, sorry, I'm you know, there's not so much that you can do about it. You can try and adjust other things. You can adjust your diet. You can try and eat at certain times, other times, right? To try and mimic it as closely as you can. But until you get rid of the actual stress, which is the shift being up all night, then it's hard to completely fix that. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. 
It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high-quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bioptimizers. Masszymes is a full-spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today risk free. They have a 365 day full money back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melanin. Melatonin, and this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Yeah, it's interesting. I did nights when I was first a nurse in the ER in Baltimore. And I remember within two years of doing that, I remember begging because the newer nurses got stuck on night shift. And for some people, they did really well with it. But for me, I walked around nauseous all night long. I could never get back on a normal sleeping pattern on days I wasn't working. And there were many people that I worked with. They did that for 20, 30 years. And they always looked significantly more tired, haggard, And they would talk about the fact that, you know, they, for circumstantial reasons, they had to work nights because they had young kids or, you know, financially they needed the differences in pay. And, And certainly when physicians are training, they have all sorts of wild schedules to provide hospital coverage. So if you're hearing this and you're a shift worker, if you have the ability to shift to a different, even if it's 11A to 11P, you know, doing an evening might be a whole lot easier on your circadian biology. What are your thoughts surrounding, and we touched on this, but lots of questions came in surrounding the GLP-1s. You know, now we have this class of drugs. We're seeing not even just obese or overweight or metabolically unhealthy patients that are using these drugs. I have colleagues in the health and wellness space that are using them to take the edge off of their appetites. What are your thoughts on GLP-1s? Do you feel like they're a good adjunct to metabolic health? Do you think they can be abused? What are your thoughts? I think that they're like overall, I think they have their use. I mean, you know, the the way they work is I wrote a blog on medium.com, but I wrote about it. And the way they work is that they basically 
reduce your appetite. They do it in various ways. So it, it slows down gastric emptying so that your stomach normally holds food and then slowly releases food. When your stomach is full, uh, you know, full of a lot of stuff, it, you signal the brain through the, the sympathetic nerve and the vagus nerve. And it tells you, you know, your stomach is full, don't eat anymore. So it's a very powerful signal. So if you slow down gastric emptying, then the stomach stays bigger for longer and therefore you don't want to eat. It also has direct effect in the brain itself. So it acts at this thing called the subfornical organ and the area of postrema, both of which have a lot of GLP-1 receptors and the blood-brain barrier is very weak at those points. So it causes not just a suppression of appetite, but in the area of postrema actually causes a lot of nausea. And that's why you have like, you know, 89% vod, you know, nausea vomiting as a side effect with these drugs. It's just how they work. So if your stomach is full, then you don't want to eat. If you're nauseous, you don't want to eat. And if you're activating these, you know, other receptors, then you don't want to eat. So it basically turns off appetite. So it's sort of, it can be useful for, for certain people. So type two diabetes, if you turn off the appetite, then you don't get hungry don't want to eat because you're nauseous and therefore you eat less and your body's going to burn the sugar, which is very good. And, and that's probably the major effect. And that's why these drugs, it's not like GLP-1s are new. They were, the GLP-1s were actually developed and FDA approved in 2005. It was just that they developed longer and longer release uh, forms that had more of these side effects, which are actually the main effect right? That's the sort of effect of the GLP-1s is the appetite suppression. And therefore, you know, it, it can be very useful. So I have nothing against these. They certainly have a role to play. The problem is that if you simply use these drugs and don't learn how to eat, then you're no really better off than, you know, for years, we thought that bariatric surgery would sort of cure obesity. Of course it didn't. It did for a while, but if you eat around, you know, the limitations of the surgery, then you'll gain your weight back. So it's the same thing. So what we see is that you have to stay on it in order for it to have its effect. And people say, well, what's wrong with that? Because you stay on blood pressure pills for years and years. And the difference is that you're losing one of the great pleasures of life, right? We talk about eating, you eat for nutrition and you eat for pleasure. That's just the way life is. Now, suppose you take this GLP-1 and you no longer have any pleasure in eating because think about it. You know, think about a time that you ate a huge, you know, all you can eat buffet. Now, you know, somebody plops a juicy steak in front of you and you're like, right? Because you're full. That's, it's a juice. It's a great steak. If you're hungry, you'd have loved it. And maybe you ate a lot of it just you know, half an hour ago, but you're full. So now imagine you're like that all the time. You can't enjoy your food anymore. Why? Because you've turned off that whole enjoyment of food. Your body thinks you're full. You can't enjoy your food anymore. So what happens is, and you know, I've been using them quite heavily, the Azempic drugs, because they actually have benefits in terms of, you know, when people lose weight, there's a lot of medical benefits to that. But a lot of people think that they're going to change everything. People don't stay on them. And so for, for six months, it's great. You've lost a lot of weight. Everybody's like, oh, you look so good you know, you're healthier because if you needed to lose the weight and you did, you are healthier. But the problem is that you can't enjoy food. And that's sort of one of life's great pleasures. So now it's okay for three months. It's okay for six months. Now it gets to a year. Now your weight loss starts to plateau. Nobody's commenting on your looks anymore because you look the same as you did before. You haven't lost any more weight because eventually it plateaus, but you still can't enjoy your food. Now you're starting to think, I'm a little nauseous all the time. You know, I'm not getting any, you know, nobody's commenting on how great I look anymore. I'm not losing any more weight, but I'm still not enjoying myself. Life is a little less enjoyable because I can't eat, right? And is it really worth it? So, you know, in the New York Times, they had this article about people and they said after a year, only about a third of people stay on this drug, especially at the high doses. And I'll tell you, I've been using them pretty heavily since about 2019, because in Canada and Ontario, it was covered for type 2 diabetes in 2019. So the government would pay for it. So I prescribed it because it was useful for type 2 diabetics in conjunction with their diet. But the difference is, of course, you know, we are using lower doses, but a lot of them came off of it. Like a lot of them just wouldn't take it anymore. A lot of them take a lot lower doses than I prescribed because they just couldn't tolerate it anymore. So it's like the difference between a blood pressure pill and taking Ozempic 
you know, for years and years and years. It's like that blood pressure pill doesn't take away one of the great pleasures of life. The Ozempic does. So is it useful? Sure, it's useful. But I think in the end, it's still going to come down to some combination of, yeah, there are drugs that can help you, right? And I'm not against drugs. I mean, I prescribe drugs all the time. But in the end, you're still going to want to know how to, you know, eat properly, develop good eating habits, you know, understand what foods are good for you, not not good for you so that you can enjoy yourself. Because with fasting, sure, you don't enjoy yourself eating while fasting because you're not eating. But when you do eat, you do enjoy yourself, right? So you're getting enjoyment as you go, as opposed to Zempic, which is you just lost your enjoyment for food forever, every day. That's hard to take. Like it's not easy. It's people think it's great, but it's it's not. Yeah, thank you so much for that because it was a side of things I hadn't really considered, but it makes a great deal of sense. And it can also explain why maybe people will stay on a GLP one for three, six, twelve months, and then they want to go back to being able to enjoy eating, even if it's healthy food. Now, are there any other supplements or other strategies that you're using with your patients right now? Do you use berberine? I got a lot of questions about supplements. I thought to myself, I'm probably going to guess no, but I wanted to ask. Yeah, most supplements, I mean, we don't prescribe a lot of supplements. So a berberine, we'd, I don't use much. It's it's not that popular up in, there in Canada. So I don't have that much experience. I don't have a lot of people on it. And you know, the data sort of sort of equivocal on whether it's beneficial or not. If it helps you, then I have nothing against it. In terms of supplements, there's only a few supplements that I that we use a lot. Magnesium is one of them. And I did a video about the magnesium. So magnesium is very interesting because a lot of people, especially these days, may in fact be very magnesium deficient because the soil that we grow our foods in has become very depleted in magnesium because we grow the food, the food has the magnesium, but then when we fertilize our back in, it has nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, but not a lot of magnesium. So people used to do things in the old days. There's something called bone meal, for example, where you'd have bone, you'd crush it all up and throw it in. Bone has a lot of calcium, has a lot of magnesium, but so then you'd replenish the soil. Right. And I remember I was reading about this where people would take bone, like 90% or 95% less magnesium in the foods that we eat compared to sort of 50, 60 years ago. But then you think that, okay, well, you say you eat a lot of meat, for example. Well, if the cows are eating the grass that has no magnesium, then the cows also don't have magnesium. And a friend of mine, Dr. David Unwin, who raises livestock and stuff, he says he always has to give magnesium to his animals because they're actually quite deficient in magnesium. So, even if you eat are not into plants and you want to eat meat, well, you're still going to get magnesium deficient because you're not getting it. You know, we used to get it from seafood, which again came from the sea, but a lot of seafood now is farmed as opposed to wild. So again, it's not quite the same. So magnesium is a very important supplement that might be, it's relatively easy. And I did talk about in the video about the different types of magnesium supplements. That's one. The other one is electrolytes. We get asked uh, some question on electrolytes sometimes and they're useful. I mean, so there's sort of three electrolytes that a lot of these, so there's another company, Enzyme Medica, who does fasting supplement. It has a bunch of Electrolytes and the main ones you worry about is salt, potassium, and magnesium. So magnesium we talked about, but salt and potassium are sort of, again, if you're fasting, it's very hard to get the salt that you need, especially if you're active and sweating, because sweat is going to have salt and potassium. So you're losing it, but you're not taking it in because if you're just drinking water, you're not getting a lot of salt and not getting a lot of uh, potassium. So that's why sometimes you have people do bone broth, which is not a true fast. And then there you can put salt in because if you're drinking coffee, it's hard to put salt in it. Whereas bone broth, you can put salt in it. So you're getting that salt or getting some electrolytes in it. If you don't want to do that, some people use you know, supplements from that standpoint. Sometimes these things have other things like amino acids and, you know, some put stevia in it, which I'm not crazy about, but, you know, it makes it taste better. So again, we're not trying to be like perfect, right? You just have to, you know, if you take a supplement and it really helps you go longer, then you still have a net benefit, even if it does have some stuff that I'm not fully supportive of. But so those are the two main ones, magnesium and then electrolytes, particularly salt. And we've had people who, who even just take salt straight like during fasting, and they find it very helpful for them. People who get like sort of lightheaded on during fasting and stuff, they'll take salt. So salt, potassium, magnesium are the main ones that we 
the main supplements that we talk about. You know, there's lots of supplements out there and I think that they do have, they can have a specific benefit, but you have to really be, you know, you're taking like things like turmeric and stuff. There's all these different things that might be beneficial, but specifically for us, that's the ones that we look at. No, that's so helpful. And, you know, to me, it's always very validating when you talk so much and place a great deal of emphasis on electrolytes, because I'm a huge proponent of them as well. We'll make sure we link up your medium article on the GLP ones, as well as your YouTube video on magnesium. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you on social media, how to purchase your books, which are a wonderful compilation. I recommend them all the time. Yeah. So on social media, you can go on Twitter, Dr. Jason Fung, that's Dr. Jason Fung. On YouTube, I have a lot of videos on there and just look under my name, Jason Fung, and you should find there's a whole lot of videos on fasting, on low carb, on diabetes, on various things. And you know, I find it great because it's free for people. People can watch whenever they want and they can go back and watch and listen. So I found that a very good thing to do. On medium.com, is where I kept my blog. Now, you used to be able to get a bunch of free articles every month, but I think they stopped it, which is a bit of a pain. But on the other hand, it's, you know, it's where I have my blog. So I never bothered to change it. I think it's five bucks a month for Medium. If you subscribe to the Fasting Method newsletter, I think, you know, I often include the link that you can get, which is called the friend link. So you don't have to pay for it because the point was not to make people pay for it. The point was that it was just an easy place to keep my blog. And then for the books, you can buy them anywhere. You can also look on my website, Dr. Jason Fung, and that's D-O-C-T-O-R, jasonfung.com. And that just has all my books listed there. Amazon's probably the easiest place. I link to Amazon just because it's the easiest place to for people to get them. But really at any bookstore, you could probably ask for them. Well, thank you again, Dr. Fung. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. Great. Thank you so much, Cynthia. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.